Hello and welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order and then we rank them from best to worst. My name's Sarah. And I'm Ben. Thank you so much for listening to us today. Ben, how are you doing? I'm okay. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I'm doing all right, Sarah. Uh, The heat in Calgary kind of finally broke and it's like you know, 17 degrees and such, which is much better than like 35, but... All of this in Celsius, of course. Yes. Um, On the other hand, overcast days make me sad. So this is the price we must pay to be comfortable. (laughs) The Vincent price? (laughs) Heyo. Yeah, I'm doing all right. I keep playing Stardew Valley. My farm's going well, and uh, I'm excited about tonight's episode. I was excited, and then you told me it was in color, and now I'm like super excited. Amazing. Yes. Uh, Tonight's episode is The Fall of the House of Usher from 1960, directed by Roger Corman. And yeah, I've been looking forward to this one for a while. It's sort of a major turning point in the career of Roger Corman, Uh, the history of AIP, the career of Vincent Price. Price has kind of been trending towards here for a bit. Yes. But I feel like this really solidifies things. Absolutely. So as you can probably tell from the title, uh, this is an adaptation of the Edgar Allan Poe short story. Um, In a lot of places, like on the poster and the trailers and things, um, This movie was advertised as House of Usher, and you'll find it usually referenced online under that title, but the full on-screen title is The Fall of the House of Usher, which puts it in line with past uh, adaptations. I think that's the name of the short story originally as well. Um, It's been a long time since uh, Jean Epstein put me to sleep, so let's turn our minds back uh, to the early days of the podcast when we talked about Edgar Allan Poe like every second episode. Yes, I think it's very interesting that Roger Corman is like advertising on his posters Edgar Allan Poe's The Fall of the House of Usher because that was a tactic that a lot of early horror tried to kind of legitimize what they were doing. Um, if it's a literary adaptation, it's not horror it's Mm -hmm. uh just an adaptation of a spooky story but yes it has been a while since we've talked about edgar Allan poe so let me give you the rundown caveat that folks on the ten dollar level of our patreon uh will have a lot of poe stuff in their heads already because i wrote a review of a play i went to go see uh that was about edgar Allan poe's life it was pretty good not wholly uh accurate they take some creative liberties people have been taking creative liberties with edgar Allan poe's biography ever since he died yes the thing though is this play did it to make him more sympathetic so Mm. you know edgar Allan poe was born in 1809 to actors david and eliza poe uh he had an older brother henry and eventually a younger sister rosalie came along Now, his father was an alcoholic and left the family when Edgar was only a year old. 
and then about a year later, his mother died of tuberculosis. His siblings went in different directions based on like who could take care of these kids, and Edgar went to be fostered by the John Allen family, from which the middle name Allen comes from. Even from a young age, Edgar showed a lot of passion for school, uh, so he was like, cool, I'm going to go to university. And unfortunately, at university, he discovered a passion for alcohol and gambling. Hmm. Don't we all? So a lot of the money that his dad, his foster dad, would send for school kind of got spent elsewhere. He left college after one year, kind of because he couldn't afford it, and decided to join the U.S. Army. Like many people who can't afford college. Mm-hmm. That was in 1827. That same year, he published his very first book of poetry called Tamerlane and Other Poems under the name a Bostonian, so not really to his name. He decided the army wasn't for him. Fair. <laughs> he would be writing like satire poems and like uh, with his fellows and um, the higher ups would be like, Edgar... So he's like, hey, I just want to get out of here. So he found a way to get discharged after two years when he went to go live with his aunt Maria Clem uh, in Boston, where his brother Henry was living. And it's in this year that he published his second book. He decided to travel around New England. He headed to New York and he published the aptly titled Poems collection in 1831. And then he expanded his writing repertoire from poems to short stories, as he also began working as an assistant editor or some other kind of assistant type of job in publishing. In different periodicals that he edited, and in some that he didn't edit, he began to publish reviews and critiques, in addition to short stories, poems, satire, and the like of his output. In 1836, because I always have to mention this, he married his cousin Virginia Clem, who was 13, and he was 26. They forged documents to make it sound like she was 17. Wow. Great. They moved to Philadelphia. Class act, Edgar. (laughs) They moved to Philadelphia, and he would publish his only complete novel in 1838, titled The Narrative of Arthur Gordon Pym of Nantucket. It's an adventure kind of book. And I think he discovered in doing that, that long form isn't for him. He likes short form. It really isn't for him. Even calling Arthur Gordon Pym like completed is kind of a stretch. It's at this time that he started working as assistant editor for the Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, which he kind of took from nothing and made it something. And it was in this magazine that he would publish Fall of the House of Usher in 1839. Unfortunately, alcoholism was affecting his uh, length of jobs at these publishing houses, as well as uh, potential hiring at new ones. He would end up burning a lot of bridges because he would accuse others of plagiarism. Some rightfully so, others not so much. And it was in 1842 that his wife, Virginia, began showing signs of tuberculosis and his alcoholism increased. Virginia would die in 1847. During her decline is when Poe would write probably like the biggest thing that he's most well known for, the poem The Raven, which was published in 1845. 
it was a huge success and he was only paid $9. Well, I mean, you know, $9 in the 1840s. No, it was <laughs> it was not a lot. Mm. And this was consistent through his whole career. Part of it was the publishing industry at the time uh, where they like they would delay paying if they paid at all. Mm. Uh, not much has changed, it sounds like. But Edgar Allan Poe is like one of the earliest authors making a go of only doing writing as his vocation like no like side business as a doctor like we've seen in other authors and so you know alcoholism and poverty take its toll on someone so he became increasingly more erratic in his behavior and in 1849 in october he was found in baltimore he was kind of incoherent he was wearing different clothes like clothes that were definitely not his and he was taken to hospital where he passed And people like to make his death out to be some kind of mystery, like what really caused his death, because to be fair, we don't have a definitive answer. But it's probably the poverty, the alcoholism, and uh, the end result of what is called cooping, which is a form of electoral fraud, which is particularly prevalent in Baltimore, uh, where there's an election. Uh, Some people would see a drunk guy stumbling out of a bar. They'd take him, get him to go vote for their candidate, take him out, change his clothes, take him to another polling place, keep getting him drunk, get him to vote for their candidate, take him out, do the whole rigmarole again. So that's likely what happened to Poe, though um, I would say it's a factor, not Mm. the cause of his death. Now, while Poe was alive, people were like, oh, wow, this dude has a lot of talent. And he had his name out there because he's writing all of these critiques and reviews and people know who he is. But he also burned bridges. And particularly after death, fellow critic and I would say professional rival Rufus Griswold wrote an obituary of Poe, which was kind of taken as word of the law for who Poe was. He was described as a lunatic who had no talent he was not worth the paper he wrote on, that sort of thing. History is written by the victors, so that's what everyone thought of Edgar Allan Poe until people rediscovered him because of his influence on other major contemporary authors. He was a very early source of detective fiction, which Sir Arthur Conan Doyle found inspiring. He inspired Jules Verne with um, some sci-fi adventure stuff, particularly with that Nantucket novel. And he even inspired H.P. Lovecraft with horror um, and the gothic horror in particular. I'd also like to note that Poe, his work was good and praised and consistently stolen because there was no copyright law at this time. And he really tried to fight to get some copyright law established, at least between America and Britain in particular. Also, he was rarely paid well, if at all. Yeah, that Rufus Griswold obituary, like to this day, still makes it hard to like casually look up facts about Edgar Allan Poe's life. Like if you're an expert, you know, true stuff. But like, I feel like the the historical record was like poisoned for a very long time. The only thing is that like that obit was supposed to make Poe look terrible, but because it's all like he was actually crazy and like, you know, his, he was out of his mind and he died of mysterious circumstances and blah, blah, blah. Like, I feel like it accidentally like added to his mythos. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Edgar Allan Poe was very prolific um, because when you're trying to make this your only job, you kind of need to be. He wrote detective fiction, mystery, humor, horror, gothic and gothic horror, adventure, nonfiction essays, satire, critiques, reviews, etc. Um, today, he's most associated with dark romanticism and gothic horror as genres, as well as uh, melancholic and spooky themes of long-lost loves, madness, and violence. We have covered a few movies that have adapted some of his works. Uh, in some cases, uh, particularly with like early horror, they kind of take inspiration from like a couple of different Poe sources. In other cases, they take inspiration from the name <laughs> without like actually adapting the Raven. And then they also throw in some torture stuff inspired by a different short story. But kind of to specifically call out the ones that have been adapted, The Fall of the House of Usher, that was published in 1839. Murders in the Rue Morgue, published in 1841. The Black Cat, published in 1843. The Telltale Heart, also published 1843, and The Raven in 1845. As you kind of already alluded to, um, there has been a previous adaptation of The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, as I said, that short story was published uh, while Poe was an editor at Burton's Gentleman's Magazine, and I think that made it easy to slide it in without having to do a lot of revisions, because it is a bit of a different kind of story from what's contemporary to other things being written at the time because it's an unnamed narrator and it's very like slow paced and mysterious. And if I think someone else had been editing Poe, they would have been like, there needs to be more to this. A lot of, all of this is metaphor and allegory. Something needs to happen. Something in this needs story. to happen in this story. Yeah. It can't just be vibes until the last page. A lot of vibes in this short story. We follow an unnamed narrator to visit his friend Roderick Usher at his estate. Roderick has told this narrator that um, he has this long illness and he really needs a friend. He's really going to go mad just being stuck in the house. So when the narrator arrives, he sees that the house itself, this huge manor, is kind of decrepit and falling apart and is ultimately a metaphor for the Usher name and legacy. Roderick's sister Madeline is here. She is also ill. She'll go into a trance and sometimes a catatonic state and wander the halls as a kind of a, a ghostly figure. So our narrator stays with Roderick and Roderick says that like, you know, this house is too much. I think this house is alive. I think my fate is connected to the house somehow. And then suddenly Madeline dies of her illness. So Roderick is like, no, I don't want her to be buried yet. I want her to just stay in the family tomb um, for at least two weeks. I don't want people to know. I don't want people to gossip. Just like let her be entombed. After that, Roderick grows increasingly erratic and it kind of culminates in this storm over the house when suddenly Roderick and the narrator hear like this screaming and crash outside and they realize that Madeline was not dead she was in a comatose state and was buried alive. Suddenly, Madeline appears inside. Her nails are bloody from, like, crawling out of the tomb. And she attacks Roderick um, in this crazed state. 
the narrator GTFOs, and as he's leaving the house, he sees that it collapses behind him with the two ushers inside. And that's the end. The only previous adaptation that we have seen is 1928's Jean Epstein film called The Fall of the House of Usher. Uh, It's French, it's experimental, it's silent, it's quite an interesting watch. It's fairly accurate to the story beats and goes for that ethereal, atmospheric kind of vibe, uh, which we liked. I liked more than you. For you, Ben, it was far too slow-paced overall. You also, um, and I agree with this, but you also pointed out a very good critique of the film, of it being kind of a shotgun of film techniques. Jean Epstein taking this opportunity to show off all of his talents, uh, which unfortunately delayed the progress of the story, which to be fair, isn't much. A lot of it is that atmosphere until Madeline gets buried alive. But ultimately, you know, it's still ranked okay. If you want to go back and listen to that episode, it's episode 22. Wow. We are currently episode 297, so it's been a while. It's been a while. And it ranks currently at number 125 out of 276. So still not bad. Not bad. Yeah, I, to be clear, think that uh, Le Chute de la Maison Usher is a very impressive artistic film, and I think it is, is definitely a work of art, and it's worth seeing. I just, it somehow, I should watch it more often, really, because it's <laughs> well, you somehow... you do have trouble sleeping. Exactly. I suffer from insomnia, and I almost always fall asleep watching that movie, so I really should watch it more often. But yes, that's, that's the only thing I hold against it, really. You will be surprised to know that that's the only adaptation of the short story until now. No radio, no theater. Oh, interesting, really? Yeah, just this. Because in 1928, there were two adaptations. Yes. There was the French film, which we watched, and then there was a like short film from the US that we didn't watch because it was a short. So weird that there were two in the same year and then absolutely nothing since. Huh. The only Poe short story, or anything, really, that has been consistently developed and adapted and covered on this podcast is Murder in the Rue Morgue. Sure. I feel like, sort of as you were alluding to earlier, stuff like The Raven and The Black Cat and, you know, Telltale Heart and Pit in the Pendulum and Cask of Amontillado, like, are all things that get sort of, like, mined for parts. Yes. More than, like, directly adapted. Yeah. Like, even a very early film, 1914's, the Avenging Conscience mm-hmm. uh, pulls from Telltale Heart and another poem that's more about like, oh, my long lost love, Lenore, or something like that. Right. Yeah. I suppose like part of the problem is that tendency of Poe's to write stories that are just sort of a lot of creepy vibes and then a thing happens, right? Like even Telltale Heart is basically that. Like the best Telltale Heart adaptation is um an animated short from the 50s uh, that James Mason uh, narrated because that kind of format suits I think his stories it's really hard to do like a big involved plot line (laughs) who'd have thought that short stories would make great short film content (laughs) (laughs) 
So uh, I guess that brings us to talking about why this movie happened. Yeah. What has Roger Corman been up to? Well, we've been seeing what he's been up to. It's been Bucket of Blood and Wasp Woman and generally the same kind of stuff he's been up to for the last five years. Um, Corman has been making films for AIP. Uh, He did recently create his own movie studio as well. Studios putting it, um, giving it a lot of credit. Uh, But he created a company with his brother, Gene Corman, to distribute other people's movies and occasionally distribute their own movies to kind of make some money on the side uh, of their deals with AIP. Um, But AIP or American International Pictures had a pretty good system going by this point. Basically, um, the company was run by James Nicholson and Samuel Arkoff. Nicholson was kind of the creative partner and Arkoff was like the business partner. And kind of what would happen is James Nicholson would come up with a title for a couple of movies and then Reynold Brown or Albert Callis would paint a poster for those movies, a poster or two. And then Roger Corman or one of their other um, cheap directors would shoot uh, two black and white movies for about $100,000 each on a schedule of about 10 days each to then be packaged and marketed together as a double feature. And that was kind of the AIP way of doing things. But by 1960, uh, Corman was growing concerned that the market for these kind of films was declining uh, due to the effect of television. Like, why are you coming to the movies to see these cheap pictures when like an episode of Alfred Hitchcock Presents is giving you kind of the exact same stuff? And you can stay at home. Right. In addition to this concern about like the market future of these movies he was also just growing really really tired of making these kinds of pictures sure uh you know he he's been doing this for like five to seven years now and you know he basically has risen up from the dirt pulled himself up by his own bootstraps as it were uh to this position where he's really good at churning out cheap b movies but he's kind of like You know, is this all there is to it? We've been seeing that he's been trying to bring in something more Uh to the films that he's making, uh, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. But there's always been something there. Yeah. And his last few movies have been actually getting like good critical reviews, like Bucket of Blood was critically praised. And so I feel like that's giving him this itch to like, but what if I made a good movie though, you know? (laughs) Um, Or rather, because I think he does make good movies, um, a movie that he feels proud enough on in pre-production to spend the money. Yeah. Yeah. What if I made a movie I was proud of? So Corman, AIP had come to him and been like, yeah, we want two horror movies, you know, $100,000 each, shoot them for 10 days each, black and white, usual deal. And Corman goes, okay, what if? We try something different. What if uh, instead of two movies for 100000 each, we do one movie for 200000 You know, and what if instead of shooting each movie for 10 days, we did one movie and we shot it for 20 days? And what if it was in color and CinemaScope? <laughs> and CinemaScope. Yeah. And um, AIP agreed to the experiment. Ultimately, 
the budget and the schedule would kind of shake out to being $270,000 and 15 days. So a little bit more money, a little bit less shooting time. Corman was like, all right, well, you know, what do you pitch, right? Like, what are you going to do for this movie? And he's like, well, all of Edgar Allan Poe's stuff is copyright free. We don't have to pay anyone for that. So let's do Follow the House of Usher. <laughs> um, so Follow the House of Usher was to be AIP's most ambitious film to date. Uh, it was their highest budgeted film up to that point. It was the first film AIP had ever shot in color. With all of that at his disposal, Corman set to work trying to secure some top talent. To write the screenplay, he hired sci-fi horror author Richard Matheson. Ah, uh, Yes. Born in 1926, Matheson grew up in Brooklyn, raised by his mother after his parents divorced. He served in Europe during World War II and graduated from the University of Missouri with a degree in journalism before moving to California. His first short story, Born of Man and Woman, was published in 1950. It's the story of a monstrous child chained by its parents in the cellar. Other famous Matheson stories include Third from the Sun, Death Ship, Disappearing Act, Little Girl Lost, Dance of the Dead, The Funeral, The Splendid Source, Steel, No Such Thing as a Vampire, and Big Surprise, all of which have been adapted into television episodes or movies over the years on shows like The Twilight Zone. His 1954 novel, I Am Legend, has been adapted to film four times. and uh, By 1960 or in no, total? No, in total. Okay, cool. And his 1956 novel, The Incredible Shrinking Man, was adapted by Matheson himself into a film the following year, as we covered in episode 201. And in 1960, he wrote a novel about his time in World War II called The Beardless Warriors, which would be adapted to a film in 1967 called The Young Warriors. Mm. So Matheson, you know, is well-known. He has these well-known novels, these well-known short stories. Um, this is almost kind of the cusp of kind of this explosion of output from Matheson because soon after this, he starts writing for the Twilight Zone TV show, either adapting his own stories or writing new stories like, I think it's Terror at 10,000 Feet, the uh, Gremlin on the Side of the Plane episode. Um, and, you know, from there, he uh, has like, he wrote an episode of Star Trek, um, The Enemy Within, where Kirk's split into good and evil parts by the transporter. Um, so, you know, he's already a well-known sci-fi horror author, um, but that's going to become even more so after this as he starts working like on TV and writing for film more. To expand Poe's short story into a feature film, Matheson adds a romantic subplot, as you do. Uh, he makes Poe's unnamed narrator into Philip Winthrop, Madeline's fiance, okay. who is basically trying to like get her out of the house and out from under Roderick's influence, which he believes is what's like making her sick. Interesting. Okay. That still kind of fits into a Gothic uh, trope. Yeah. Matheson's script was approved by James Nicholson, but Samuel Arkoff was wary. See, the movie didn't have a monster and monsters were a key ingredient in the AIP horror formula dating all the way back to stuff like The Beast with a Million Eyes in 1955 where Arkoff freaked out because the monster was very like conceptual and there wasn't like literally a beast with a million eyes in the movie so he made Corman like shoot extra stuff to shove a monster in there right so and a conceptual monster is again in this film yeah so Corman had to like 
fight Arkoff on this, and he finally managed to convince Arkoff that the house itself is the monster, um, and even added dialogue into the movie to kind of try and like reinforce that notion. Um, but otherwise, Corman basically shot Matheson's first draft script. Corman felt that like you know it's Richard Matheson, like I'm just going to shoot what he writes. That's fair. That's like six years since Beast of a Million Eyes. Yeah, about that. Okay, yeah. So after like six years, he finally has the pull to be like, listen, Mr. Arkoff, please. <laughs> yeah, the house is the monster. The other luxury that the higher budget afforded Corman was that now he could hire a star actor. In this case, Vincent Price. Price's salary was $50,000. Um, so again, the movie cost two seventy. So that's how much of the movie's budget just went to Vincent Price. Um, But he was very dedicated to the part. Like, he wanted this part very badly. Um, He bleached his hair and shaved his mustache for the role. Dedication. And he submerged himself into this persona of the hypersensitive, tormented Roderick Usher. Amazing. Yeah. uh, He was, like, really, really excited to do this. For the romantic lead, actor Mark Damon was cast. Uh, He was born Alan Harris in Chicago in 1933. He attended dental school uh, and then graduated with a uh, MBA uh, (laughs) before deciding that he'd rather be an actor and began taking theater classes. Quite a journey. (laughs) His first film roles were in 1956 for Regal Pictures, but House of Usher was his first starring role, and he actually won a Golden Globe Award for Most Promising Newcomer for this movie. Myrna Fahi plays Madeline Usher. Born in Maine in 1933, she participated in numerous beauty pageants after graduating high school, which brought her to the attention of Hollywood talent scouts. Moving out to California, she began modeling and appearing in small roles. Uh, She continued doing beauty contests. She appeared on TV and on the stage. She never really, like, took off as an actress. She kind of just worked steady in various things. Um, By 1960, she was earning more press and getting some better roles, but she was also getting really tired of playing good girls in Westerns, and she took the role in House of Usher because she wanted to kind of branch out into different stuff. Her most significant role was playing the titular bride in the one-season TV series adaptation of Father of the Bride from 1961 to 1962. Uh, She was cast in that role because of her supposed resemblance to Elizabeth Taylor. Um, And she hated the show, and she hated that comparison, so she left, and so the show ended after one season. Um, She started dating baseball star Joe DiMaggio and got death threats from his fans because he used to be dating Marilyn Monroe and then Marilyn Monroe died and now he was dating her and his fans didn't like that. Like that was disrespectful to Marilyn Monroe somehow. Fans Uh, have always been a little bonkers, huh? Yeah. Uh, But she continued to appear in small parts on television through the 1960s until her death in 1973 of cancer. So Corman's production team for House of Usher had been assembled over the past five years into an efficient machine and uh, now was kind of like let loose. 
Uh, Production designer Daniel Holler purchased old sets and props from Universal for $2,500 and cobbled them together into the Usher house. Hilarious. Amazing. What, What a steal, honestly. Cinematographer Floyd Crosby, a 30-year veteran of the industry, was working with color and widescreen for the first time in his career, using wide-angle lenses to make the small sets look more expansive. Before shooting began, Corman took advantage of the increased schedule to do a day and a half of rehearsals and pre-planned all of the blocking and camera moves on diagrams of the set ahead of time. Despite the larger budget, Corman was still the master of thrift. Uh, When he read of a forest fire that was taking place in the Hollywood Hills, uh, he took a crew out to get shots of Mark Damon riding a horse through the desolate environment post-fire to serve as like shots of him riding to the house. Amazing. When Corman read of a barn in rural California that was scheduled for demolition, uh, he went out and burned it down himself in order to shoot it uh, for the film's climax. So it's the fall of the barn barn of of Usher. Usher. Correct. (laughs) Throughout the film, we see macabre psychedelic portraits of the various scions of the Usher clan over the generations. These were created by popular beatnik artist Bert Schoenberg and... uh, They were like a real hit with the cast. So a lot of them took the paintings home after filming finished, including, you know, amateur art historian Vincent Price. Uh, Schoenberg's work and life are fascinating. Uh, He was part of the beat movement. He was doing like psychedelic art like 10 years before that was popular. I definitely encourage listeners to look him up uh, to learn more about his life and his work. The film's musical score is by Les Baxter, who also scored The Black Sheep, Voodoo Island, Pharaoh's Curse, and Macabre. And The Fall of the House of Usher premiered in Palm Springs on June 18th, 1960, to very positive critical reviews. Oh, good. Price's performance was called Masterful, and critics stated that Corman had done himself proud as a director. Yay! So it, it succeeded. Like this gamble, this risk, this trying new things experiment. Yes. Uh, AIP's first color and widescreen film, their most expensive to date, also became their most successful to date, grossing $2 million at the box office. Damn. Uh, today, The Fall of the House of Usher is available on Blu-ray in Scream Factory's Vincent Price Collection, Volume 1, and it is also currently streaming on the Criterion channel in their Grindhouse Gothic collection. Amazing. Well, folks, hopefully you can get a copy because this sounds like it's going to be very, very fun and very good. I'm so excited. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and when we come back, we will discuss The Fall of the House of Usher from 1960, directed by Roger Corman. See you on the other side, everybody. Welcome back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Fall of the House of Usher from 1960, directed by Roger Corman. Sarah, you like that gothic shit. Uh, what did you think of this movie? 
I very much like this gothic shit. I'm glad. You have seen this before, yes. you were telling me, uh, but that was many years ago. Yes. What do you think of it now? It was better. Oh, good. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the last time I saw this movie was like maybe 20 years ago on like a VHS tape, I think, or maybe it was on TV. Yeah, maybe it was on TV. <laughs> okay. The um, best viewing experience. Either way, much better watching it on Blu-ray from Scream Factory. So yeah, this and it, you know, seeing it in the context of like the whole genre up to this point, this is really good. This uh, is doing what like gothic horror movies kind of should be doing, right? Yeah, it was a very good time. I very much enjoyed the color. I, I enjoyed Vincent Price's performance, um, everything. It was it was very good. I very much enjoyed this. Yeah. Why don't you take us through the plot line of this version? Sure. So for the most part, we do kind of stick pretty closely, even with this change of Philip Winthrop being here and being the fiancé to Madeline. When we open, Philip arrives at the House of Usher to see his fiancé. She had been in Boston, and that's where they met, presumably for school or something. And then she came back home and has not been heard from since. So he's here to come see her, and he's refused entry by the butler named Bristol because Madeline has been confined to bed because she's ill. So Philip says, let me see her brother, then Roderick. And after some convincing, he manages to get inside. A very good atmosphere setting and all of this, a lot of really good sound design to accomplish this, um, particularly because Roderick, played by Vincent Price, has like superhuman hearing. He's overly sensitive to many things, a lot of sensory overload. As Philip explains that, you know, we're going to get married, blah, blah, blah. Roderick says that he's against the marriage because the Usher bloodline is tainted. Leave now. And Philip won't. So he's here. Roderick is emblematic of the Usher line. Uh, as I said, he has this sensory overload to light, sound, touch, taste and he's the older brother so he's like this is why i'm much worse but madeline is going to be going this route as well as roderick and philip are arguing madeline comes in and it's clear that she's ill but believes that she can't leave she can clearly get out of bed um, but she does believe that she can't actually leave philip ends up staying the night um so they sit down to dinner and Roderick and Madeline are kind of talking around what I'll call the Usher curse and kind of avoiding the topic and explaining anything to Philip. That night, Philip sees that Madeline like sleepwalks, basically, and is found in the chapel. And if she were to be awoken, it would be too much for her heart. Um, so that's kind of like the only hint of like illness that Philip sees. And in the morning when he goes to talk to Madeline and try to convince her to leave, she takes him to the family crypt that is in the basement, like the deep basement, to say, here's my coffin, here's Roderick's coffin, like, this is where I'm going to be. She's kind of obsessed with death. Philip still isn't quite getting it, and so Roderick tries to explain to Phil that, sorry, Philip, <laughs> in my notes I put down Phil, um... Roderick explains to Philip that um, the past ushers evil legacy 
has fallen on the present descendants. To kind of sum it up, the sins of the father have fallen upon the children. We go through a roster. Everyone's been pretty awful. Um, and that evilness has seeped into the stones of the house itself. So now the house itself is evil. Philip resorts to take Madeline away now. He thinks that this idea that the house is evil, that their line is evil, is what is poisoning Madeline's mind. Like, clearly that's why she's ill, because you're filling it with these ideas. So he's like, I'm going to take her now. Um, he starts packing, and then he overhears that Madeline and Roderick have a fight. When he finally gets in, Madeline is on the bed and appears to be dead. There's a chapel in this house because it's huge. And so we see a little bit of the funeral as, you know, everyone is grieving the camera and Roderick see that Madeline is moving slightly. Roderick hides this from Philip and they take her in her coffin down to the crypt. The next morning, as he is talking to Bristol, Philip learns that catalepsy is part of Madeline's illness. So he goes down, he tries to get her out of the crypt, um, but she's not in her coffin. He goes and he confronts Roderick and he's kind of like going mad with grief. Um, and Roderick says that she's been hidden away into some secret place and she's actually dead. Philip is, like I said, mad with grief. And so he kind of collapses into sleep into exhaustion and he has this surreal dream sequence where basically he is wandering the house um and the usher ancestors are all there taunting him um and he just can't seem to get to madeline he wakes up and he confronts roderick again and roderick is clearly like disturbed because he can hear something and he eventually breaks down and says that he can hear Everything, her screams, her breathing, her fingernails clawing against the coffin, and that she's escaped. So she ha she's not dead. She's escaped from this crypt, this secret place. Philip runs to try to find her, gets lost in the labyrinth of the house. He almost finds her, and she attacks him, because now she is mad with the Usher curse, um, also for being for finding herself in a crypt and having to claw her way out. That would drive anyone mad, I think. She attacks and attempts to kill Roderick. The house seems to light itself on fire as part of the Usher curse. And as the house lights up, Bristol goes to try to help Roderick and Madeline, and the house crumbles. Philip barely makes it out alive. And as he makes it out, the house collapses behind him. As is typical with gothic movies, a lot of the story is spent on atmosphere and easing you in and everything. So there are like some things that I kind of went over quickly in the plot synopsis because it's not really worth spending the same amount of time talking about it. Uh, I'd rather get to the discussion. But is there anything that I kind of skipped over or... Um, barely touched that you would like to emphasize, Ben? No, no. I think there's just a lot of like theorizing that we can do in the discussion about various points in the story. Yeah, I think um, since you've brought up theorizing mm. and 
you mentioned in the context setting that Roger Corman was like, okay, Arkoff, I'll put in and underline and highlight the house is the monster. Right. We do have a scene where Roderick is very explicitly like the house is trying to kill you, Philip. Yes. Um, like the house is old and crumbling and decrepit. It's got a big crack up the side. Uh, it shifts in the night. Um, there's a lot of different Chekhov's guns lying around as Roderick's like, oh yeah, the house is built on like a fucking swamp that's big enough to swallow it whole or whatever. Also, the house's foundations are cracked and are crumbling apart. And, you know, we also built it out of like balsa wood or whatever. So it'll just go up in a blazing inferno at the drop of a hat. And every time Philip's like, well, maybe you should fix that. Roderick's like, nah, nah, it's for the (laughs) best that, that it's all going to kill us all one day. So yeah, there's like these bits where like a chandelier falls on Philip or like uh, the railing on the stairs gives way or other things that are kind of mostly explainable by the house is old and falling apart. But Roderick's like, no, that was the house deliberately trying to kill you. And I think that there's moments done through the, the filmmaking that also imply this, the way the camera will focus on the fire sparking out against Philip or the pot moving on its own to kind of come close to almost burn Philip. So I think like, you know, I don't think they needed the scene, but it's neat that it's there. I think it's very interesting to think about the house not actually being a source of evil and Mm. more Roderick himself. Yes. Yeah. I think that what's interesting here is you could basically read the whole Usher curse as being basically Roderick's obsession. Yeah. Like Madeline seems fine other than her catalepsy. Like that's the only like tangible evidence of her illness. And then the rest of it's just like ideas that Roderick has put in her head. I think it's really interesting that Roderick is of the opinion that the house itself is evil because it's like absorbed all the evil of its occupants over all these generations. And yet like Philip is like, okay, well then let's get Madeline out of the house and that'll make her better. And Roderick's like, no, because Roderick's obsessed with the idea that if Madeline survives and has children, that will like perpetuate the evil diseased Usher line. And Roderick wants the Ushers to end uh, with him and Madeline. And I think what it really comes down to, at least in my read of this is Roderick has all this kind of guilt and shame about how essentially you need to be evil to be rich. Mm -hmm. Like all of his rich ancestors, like he's from this long line of evil people. And it's like, well, this guy was a smuggler and a pirate and this guy was a slave trader. And, you know, this person was an assassin and all these things. But like, it really boils down to like, to be horrifically rich uh you have to do bad things and be evil and so roderick's psychosis his kind of mania comes from i think this worry of like well i've inherited all the wealth that came from evil so does that mean i've inherited the evil evil?" itself yeah is evil an inheritable trait and i think that's a really like interesting question because I think that sort of um, worry 
that sort of anxiety is something that's at like the heart of a lot of um, what sometimes gets called like white guilt. Yeah. Um, these traumas about like, you know, people who don't want to admit to things like systemic racism in the world because it's like, well, if I admit that these things exist, then how culpable does that make me? Like, I'm not a bad person. I've never done anything bad, but I'm clearly descended from people who have done bad things. What does that mean for my own culpability? You know, Philip here is on the other side of the spectrum of being like, well, I can't imagine you having to bear the sins of your forefathers. And it's like, my dude, they bear the fruit right. of the forefathers. Um, but it's very interesting how like they are character foils to each other. Yes. Which... And in at least this story, like in this telling, Madeline is kind of caught in the middle. Yes. Which is like a really smart bit of adaptation yeah. that the script does. Like it's a very smart script clearly recognizing that like the main thing that needed to be done here to make this a story and not just some vibes with an ending (laughs) is there needed to be character conflict, right? So in the Poe short story, the narrator is a friend of Roderick's who's kind of just invited to the house to basically bear witness to the collapse of the house and the death of the ushers really. Um, And here there's a conflict now between Roderick and Philip over Madeline and over the future. And that's this like philosophical conflict too, between like, Hey, you can like leave your past and your trauma and your shit behind and like go on to have like a healthy life um, versus like, no, no, we must all die here. Yeah. I really liked how this adaptation um, brought Madeline more agency mm. Like there are times where it feels like, oh, she doesn't have agency because she's just like kind of being argued about rather than being in scenes. But the fact that she's the one who leads Philip down to see the crypts, right? Um, she is able to have a point of view and perspective that offers like a question of who, like what Roderick's mo- motivations are, mm-hmm. like not that she just only furthers his perspective, but I think it was a really good choice. The movie does a good job of like keeping things ambiguous about like, well, you know, is there a curse or not? Is evil inheritable? Is the house evil? You know, when the house dies, do we die? Like how tied in is everything? It's also like tied in with this, like it's not just the family being degenerate and that being sort of reflected in the house but also the land around the house there's like Mm -hmm. very much this like kind of celtic almost idea of like the people are the land and the land are the people where it's like oh the land used to be like green and fertile and then we showed up and it became this horrible you know dead wasteland and even Bristol, who is just like the butler, but he's been here for 60 years and he explicitly says, uh, when the house dies, I'll die. Yeah. So like, how much does he believe about the idea of the evil of the house seeping into himself? Right. But we also know that like, I don't know, I'm interested, like you have to ask yourself questions about like, how were Roderick and Madeline raised? Is this an idea that is older than Roderick or is this just Roderick's obsession? Because it's Mm -hmm. so, a lot of it is clearly Roderick and his inability to kind of deal with 
the blood on the hands of his family that has like led him to this life. Um, because the portraits of all the evil ushers, these are not like portraits that were made down through the generations of these people. They're all by Roderick. Yeah. Right. So Roderick's taken the time to like paint these psychedelic, disturbing, not period portraits of all of his evil ancestors. He makes this like portrait of Madeline after she dies. Um, he has a painting of the house that is there from like the start of the movie that is of the house burning down, uh, which is of course what happens to it. So, so much of this is motivated by Roderick's obsession and, you know, it's, there's, there's psychological trauma here uh, of this inherited guilt. Madeline clearly has like the catalepsy. So there is something actually wrong with her physically um, to some degree. And Roderick, you know, his sensory overload stuff like kind of puts him a little bit on the spectrum, I think, in terms of a read on like what's wrong with Roderick uh, in terms of his health. I want to ask you, mm. when the movie started, it likes to play around with uh, where is Bristol? Right. And his personality does not fit this, but it had me thinking, is Bristol just like a the house personified? Right, right. Is Bristol like a manifestation of the house? No, I think Bristol's a real person and the movie's just being, you know, a little spooky. Yeah. But I do think that... At least for me, what makes more sense here is that like Madeline's probably for the most part fine and could probably get better in different environs. But, you know, it's interesting the way that the movie kind of like has some accurate observations about the way that we can like be our own worst enemies in terms of getting better, whether that's mentally or physically. Like Madeline kind of refuses to eat anything more palatable than like gruel and even then she won't really eat it because she's already bought into the idea that she's dying and you know Roderick kind of refuses to make anything better because he wants her to die right which is why he makes sure that she's buried alive and stuff right like he knows that she's alive but he wants her dead because he thinks that's what's better for everyone and it's kind of this like fatalism mm -hmm. right yeah, versus the idealism of Philip of mm -hmm. consistently being hopeful of like, no, we can escape. Let's go. Um, I found Mark Damon very wooden in the beginning. Um, I was like, oh, this guy's re really bringing the movie down. But I think his very like protagonist wooden performance at the beginning helps sell when he goes mad with grief at the end and even like in the dream sequence and stuff like he does a really good job of showing that change and showing it gradually and then how it's suddenly there. Like he, he does a really good job even though he starts from a wooden place. Yeah. I think that like he's about as good as you can expect from this sort of role. Uh, there is something kind of subtle that I really like about him, which is I really am glad they cast someone who's, younger mm -hmm. and he's actually kind of a little small um he has a lot of bark like he's like i'm taking madeline out of here but he doesn't really have a lot of bite like he doesn't seem up to like 
killing Roderick or, you know, doing any of these big physical things. Like, I'm really glad that he's not like a middle-aged, like, linebacker looking kind of guy because I think in introducing the idea that he and Roderick are at conflict, you have to solve the problem of why doesn't he just overpower Roderick Mm -hmm. when like Roderick's like, Oh, I'm so weak. You know, the slightest bit of anything would just make me collapse and die. And so it's like, okay, well if Roderick's your antagonist, like just push him over and then pick up Madeline and leave. So I think, having Philip be someone who actually looks like he's in his twenties and looks like he maybe, you know, will talk a good talk against Roderick, but is probably not quite used to like the idea of like going against someone who's a little older than him, you know, who feels a little bit out of his depth, who is physically shorter than Vincent Price. A lot of people are shorter than Vincent Price, but, but I think it's important to like get across this idea that like, you know, this is maybe, this is not someone who's actually used to being like someone who's going to fight Roderick or something, right? Yeah. That conflict between the two characters comes through in the set design uh-huh. and the costume design and everything because when he arrives, Philip is all in blue, like he's Belle from Beauty and the <laughs> Beast and the entire motif of the house of whatever Roderick and or Madeline are wearing is like red and specifically red velvet. So it kind of looks like blood. And Philip stands out when he is like sitting on the couch. Like he looks so out of place. Yeah, it's a gorgeous film. I think it's a bit overlit at times, um, which I'm going to put down to Floyd Crosby and Roger Corman not being used to color and probably just lighting things a little more than they should have to err on the side of safety of like making sure that we're exposing for color. Um, but there was still shadows. Oh, yeah, yeah. They, no. they were still going for it. But I think you're absolutely right that they were like, it was just a little bit of an experience with that. Yeah, no, there's some good shadowy stuff, but... I think I mostly just noticed it because there's like a scene in the movie where the dialogue's like, oh yes, I can't have any light in the house softer than like a single candle in a room. Let me go light the single candle. And like the room is kind of flatly, brightly lit, like we're in like a sitcom. Mm -hmm. Um, However, the production design is incredible. The use of color in the movie throughout is really amazing. Not just with the costumes, but with like, the dream sequence and especially the ending with the thunderstorm where Corman decides like, yeah, the color of lightning is blue and it makes this like vivid neon blue light when it comes in through the windows. And that gets contrasted with like Madeline who's covered in all of the red blood and everything like the use of color in this movie is really good. Yeah. They don't shy from the blood Mm -hmm. when it finally comes to it. Mm Mm-hmm. And I say when it finally comes to it, because for the most part, this is a bloodless movie. As much as they've made these adaptation choices we've talked about, it still basically follows the Poe formula of like atmosphere and vibes until the end, right? But it doesn't feel bloodless. Mm. Part of it, I think, is, you know, its use of color um, and implied blood in the house. I think it's also in the way that the portraits are painted Mm. because they're very like red and purpley and they feel gory 
even though it is just a portrait. Uh, and when Madeline has bloody hands, had been scraping her fingernails up against the coffin, you see it all. You see a blood trail through the house, and that's what Philip follows. Like, it doesn't shy away from blood when it comes to it, and it also doesn't go overboard, which sometimes felt like Dracula, horror for Dracula, was going a little overboard. I understand why, um, and I respect it, but just to kind of compare and contrast a little bit there. Yeah, I think Myrna Fahe is okay as Madeline for most of the movie, but her best stuff is undoubtedly at the end when she's murderous and has gone off the deep end. The movie's a little slow sometimes, and it kind of runs over the same ground a bit on its way to the ending, like the way that we kind of have a few different scenes of like the house makes noises in the night and Philip goes to check or like a few different scenes of like, you know, the way that your love interest is in a different coffin, like that we kind of like, Oh, let's look for the hidden coffin. we do that a few times on the way to the ending. But once Madeline is um, out of the box, so to speak, like the movie's just spectacular um, from yeah. like there to the ending, which is very much in the spirit of Poe. I, I see what you're saying about it feeling a little repetitive. I think they handled that very well because they put so much effort into the atmosphere and building tension. Um, I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but the sound design, goodness gracious, with like all of the creaks and everything, um, the wind howling, the thunder and lightning, like this, the sound design in here is very, very well done. And the music is doing a lot of work as well to build the tension without feeling repetitive. Like it changes subtly as we go through. Um, and here is where I will just be like, hey, did you know this movie has an overture? Yeah. Like, excuse me, Mr. Corman, <laughs> we give you uh, like a bit more money and you're like, sweet, overture time. Yeah. And listen, I absolutely respect it. Uh, it I just found it so like, oh, we're, you're going for full respectability. I <laughs> love it. Yeah. Like, it's not maybe one of the most iconic horror movie scores of all time i mean we did just watch psycho like two weeks ago but les baxter composes like like a legitimate piece of classical music here for the score like there's bits of the score where i was like is this like am i watching fantasia like it just <laughs> it's a really good piece of music yeah the score and it really like elevates the whole movie and makes it just feel so classy you know and i think the other thing that helps in my mind anyways the atmosphere building not feel boring mm. is that the camera is almost always moving oh yeah corman's like get me a fucking crane up in here the and... first shot is a moving crane yeah yeah like mr corman <laughs> what are you doing it's amazing that shot where he comes out onto the balcony before going down the stairs and then when he gets to the bottom of the stairs the chandelier falls where we're looking like past the chandelier to him and we're kind of framing him between candles of the chandelier as the camera and him move around it's just it's good always do a rehearsal mr corman like goodness yeah i mean <laughs> It, it just, is, it's it is, clear it is. that like having time and money helps elevate your talent. Oh yeah. Like it's almost hard to 
judge this against Corman's earlier work. It's so different that it's practically like a different style altogether. Like it's a period, you know, gothic horror movie. And so much of Corman's stuff has been more like contemporary sci-fi horror kind of stuff. And I think it just shows that given time and money, you know, he doesn't get lost. Um, He doesn't go overboard. He doesn't shoot everything like it's still a cheap weekend shoot. Like there's vision and ambition Mm -hmm. here, which I mean, the, the dream sequence really shows, the climax really shows. Like this is a legitimately well-directed film and it really shows the talent that's been there the whole time with Roger Corman kind of just bubbling under the surface, you know? Like that pot of gruel. Right. Yeah, it's just really cool. It's really cool to see him make like a real movie. (laughs) I think he feels proud of himself as well. The only other thing I have to say is, uh, as always, Vincent Price is fantastic. Yes. Um, So Vincent Price... Actually, uh, he said that he modeled his performance as Roderick on um, a specific different actor. Oh. And I wanted to know if you were able to tell, if you could tell who he was kind of modeling his performance on, what style. What style? Yeah, like like who, is there an actor that his version of Roderick brings to mind for you? No. Okay. So Vincent Price said that basically he played Roderick as if he was... Conrad Veidt playing a character. Interesting. I can see that now. Yeah. And indeed, the whole movie has kind of a strong silent movie feel to it. I felt that too, because so much of like the creepy atmospheric stuff, like sure, Philip will be calling out Madeline, but like a lot of it was not necessarily on screen Mm. origins of sounds well particularly the dream sequence right is has no dialogue or sound effects in it it's just the visuals and the music uh, which enables it to and i think the fact that it's a dream sequence gives it the permission within the context of an american film to go into some german expressionist silent movie stuff right yeah it definitely does that yeah i don't know man i just really like this movie i really like that vincent price called upon Conrad Veidt, who I think would have passed by now. Yeah, I think Conrad Veidt would have, uh, has, is, is dead at this point. But yeah, like he's basically doing Conrad Veidt in Hands of Orlac kind of stuff. Yeah, no, it, the way he reacts to sound is very much the way Conrad Veidt reacts to murderous hands. Right. Like it's good. As soon as you said it, I got it. Yeah, it's, it's great. Um, you know, the fucking, the hits keep coming here on-screen scene. Yeah. Well, let's compare it to the other hits. Let's uh, look at ranking. All right. So I'm looking within the top 20, just so you know. Same. Okay, cool. Um, do you want to go first or shall I? I'll go first um, because I want to call out some waypoints as we go into ranking. So we've mentioned Horror of Dracula. I think it's also good to point out uh, and acknowledge that movie as like bringing the style of gothic in color yeah totally in totally you wouldn't have this movie without the hammer horror stuff coming out of the uk absolutely so horror of dracula um we covered that in episode 232 
that is currently ranked at number eight. And as much as I like The Fall of the House of Usher, I don't know if I can put it above Dracula. I don't think I can. Um, The other movie I wanted to call out is The Picture of Dorian Gray because of its use of color. Honestly, the style of Roderick's paintings, which are really Bert Schoenberg's paintings, reminded me of the like evil Dorian Gray portrait in that movie. Exactly. Yeah. So just wanted to call that movie out. Uh, That is currently ranked at number 16. Right next to that is Isle of the Dead, ranked at number 17, which I bring up because it also had a person buried alive mm-hmm. um, under mistaken deathness. Circumstances? Circumstances. Mistaken circumstances. But ultimately, as I was moving in around between 8 and 17, my eyes settled at Nakagawa's Yatsua Kaiden. Okay. Ranked at number 11. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was very interesting because they're both like adaptations. In the case of Yatsuo Kaiden, we have seen many versions. Nakagawa's version ranks the highest. Um, it is about your past coming in to haunt you and um, a ghost seeking revenge. Um, and it felt very interesting to compare that to Fall of the House of Usher. Um, in its use of color and not being scared of showing blood and violence, um, the very theatrical nature of Yatsuo Kaiden and a gothic horror in color. So I honestly felt this was a really good spot and that I would put it above Yatsuo Kaiden, putting it also below I Walked With a Zombie at number 10, which I can go into why, but that's kind of where I was thinking. Okay. What about you? Uh, Yeah, I mean, I'm looking in sort of the same areas here. I thought this could potentially go above Horror of Dracula because I thought this could potentially go above Spiral Staircase and The Fly, but I'm definitely not going above Peeping Tom. No. Uh, So my ceiling was six because of that. And then going down to the other end, um, you know, you have Picture of Dorian Gray at 16. Looking below that... um, you know, Isle of the Dead's really strong. Son of Frankenstein's really strong. But I did think this was better than The Body Snatcher, which is good, but has a kind of like gotcha, like Twilight Zone twist ending thing yeah, going it on. Does. Whereas, which like, is funny given Richard Matheson wrote for Twilight Zone in yes, here. Yeah, but this has an ending that's much more like the inevitability of man or whatever. Um, <laughs> So I kind of like this better. So my range was 6 to 19. Um, but what you're talking about is kind of... Mac totally, dab in the middle. Yeah, totally within that range. Um, yeah, that's tough, man. Uh, so you wanted to go... So why below I Walked With a Zombie then? Because of the atmosphere. Mm. I Walked With a Zombie never feels boring. It feels so tense. Even when we're off the main house grounds like when we're in town and um so lancelot is singing and i just have a lot of respect for a movie that like can manage its tension like that fall of the house of usher manages tension very well but i felt like i walked with a zombie did it better okay well if we're putting it here that puts it just outside the top 10 yeah are you okay if it goes above yatsuo kaiden yeah Okay, sweet. Yeah, I think I'm good with this. So entering the list at the new number 11 is The Fall of the House of Usher, 
from 1960, directed by Roger Corman. Mr. Corman, what you doing? I can't wait to see the rest of these Poe adaptations. Mm. My goodness. Um, Yeah, I thought it was only Mask of the Red Death or whatever was in color. I thought the rest were... Nah, nah, they're all in color. Amazing. Yeah. So excited. Folks, if you would like to see this list that we have been discussing, you can head to our website, ScreamScenePodcast.com, and there you will find links to the many episodes that we have mentioned today. If you would like to appeal this or any other ranking, you can drop us a line through our Ask box on Tumblr, or you can email us at ScreamScenePodcast at gmail.com. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can subscribe to the show through our RSS feed. You can leave the show a rating or a review on the podcasting app of your choice. Those really help us out um, with the uh, algorithm sharing the show to other people. And you can sort of skip the algorithm by recommending the show directly to other people, whether that's on social media, whatever social media platform you've migrated to recently, or just tell people about the show in your day-to-day life. Uh, Just, you know, in person, like a normal human being. (laughs) You can also help the show out by going to our Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast, where you can become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month. Patrons at the $5 and $10 level get access to regular bonus content, uh, and there's always cool stuff going up over there. I recently wrote a review of The Last Voyage of the Demeter, uh, the Dracula on a Boat movie that just came out. Um, So to find out exactly why it disappointed me to the degree that it did, head on over to patreon.com slash scream scene podcast. Well, Ben, as you said, the hits keep coming. uh, But what's coming next week? Next week, Sarah, we are back with Hammer Horror uh, for the second film in their Dracula series. It's The Brides of Dracula. Amazing. Love it. See you then, creatures of the night. Bye. Bye. Bye.